Hey listeners, we just wanted to give you a brief content warning before today's show that we delve pretty deeply into suicide, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. We just wanted to provide that as a warning for anyone who may be sensitive to that. Thank you so much. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I am Mike Snoonian. I'm Lara Unterstall. And, and Jen, oops, sorry. <laughs> no, you go ahead. <laughs> this is what happens when Jen isn't here. Yes. Jen is the glue that holds everything together, listeners, but she is on break this week. So, uh, yeah, she just basically is catching up after a super successful weekend with the Losers Club uh, Film Fest where everyone got together. It looked amazing, but she is still like kind of catching up on everything after doing that. So she is allowing us to the big kids table today. We got to put everything together in realize exactly how much work Jen does every episode to make this happen. So, Jen, if you're listening, we love you very much, and we can't wait to have you back on next week. Indeed. But we we are going to continue our exploration this week of cults and fundamentalism and how they manipulate individuals and the kind of persons that are prone to fall for them. Uh, And just like our last episode, this is also a patron pick. So we are going to be talking about Japanese filmmaker Sion Sono's follow-up to his 2001 breakthrough film, Suicide Club. Uh, We're going to be, actually, you know what? We're going to let our guest introduce this film. So before we get into the synopsis and the theme of the movie, let's welcome our patron, Holly, who chose this film for us and find out why she wanted to talk about it. So Holly, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about Noriko's Dinner Table. Excellent. And this is a movie that I think I got the name of it wrong 30 times in (laughs) leading up to telling listeners what we're going to uh, watch and listen and talk about. So Holly, why did you choose this movie? Um, I chose this movie because, well, I just, this was a movie I watched at kind of the perfect point in my life for it to have maximum impact on me. Just I had moved out from my parents' house for the first time. It was, I was kind of figuring out who I was and what I wanted out of life. And I was super receptive to all of the messages in this film. And it just hit me really hard when I watched it. Um, and the more I go back to it, the more I feel like I just, I relate to every character more and more in this movie. It's just, it's such an empathetic film, despite how cynical it can be. And despite the nature of the, uh, the subject matter. I agree. And like you said, all the messages, there is a lot going on in this movie. It's a lot to take in on a first time yes. viewing. <laughs> when you watch how many times would you say you've seen this movie? I figure with a comfort horror movie, it's probably something that was on like heavy rotation uh, for a long time, if not still. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I go back and I watch this every couple of years, probably. Um, and I first watched it maybe a little over 10 years ago. So it was at least three or four times at this point. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. I just go back and watch small portions of it that I uh, that I have on my mind, because sometimes a certain scene comes into mind and I just want to go watch it and like kind of refresh myself on it. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite scenes? Um, I really love watching. I, I know it's really morbid, but just kind of watching the whole scene at the end when Kumiko is kind of like going through all of these thoughts she's having about um, Broken Dam, that character and her death and how she mm-hmm. goes to that client to get stabbed to death. And I just like that that scene always haunted me and I always go back and rewatch that one because it's just, it's one of those things where it's like this movie takes so long to build up to the horror, but when you get there, it's so dark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very, very quiet for most of it. And then there's kind of a cathartic explosion in the last act, especially compared to suicide club, which I just watched, you know, and is really (laughs) intense and over the top from, from scene one. Exactly. Yeah. And Noriko kind of leans away from the violence in a lot of ways. Like you get these scenes of violence, but you're focusing on people's reactions instead. And I just feel like it's such a different approach to sui- than Suicide Club was. And mm-hmm. I prefer this film over Suicide Club. I feel like the cynicism doesn't feel so unpalatable in this one. Had you seen Suicide Club before watching Noriko and I didn't knew it was a follow up or did that kind of come after the fact? I actually saw uh, Noriko first, which is why I felt comfortable suggesting it, because I don't think they rely on each other, even though they're related films. Yeah, they, they're kind of uh, sister films rather than direct sequels. Yeah, I was I was wondering that when I watched this, because I've, Suicide Club has been on my list forever. And um, I was watching this going, I wonder how much they, they lean on each other. And then I went back and watched Suicide Club. And they don't really, I mean, they sort of rotate around the same event or the same period Mm -hmm. in time, but otherwise there's no really shared characters. There's some shared names, which I feel is interesting because so much of this is about identity. Uh, But yeah, like you really, really don't need to see one to appreciate the other. Exactly. You mentioned how you felt a tremendous amount of empathy for the characters and how over time you started to have like different feelings about different characters, depending on like when you were watching it or what stage you felt you were at in your own life. How would you say like your allegiances shifted to certain characters over time? Like what jumped out to you that would make you jump from say, understanding one perspective to another? I mean, when I first watched it, I think it was definitely Noriko and Yuka that I was really projecting onto it was easy to map my feelings onto them because I was a a young woman and they were young women and I really appreciated seeing a film that depicted teenage girls as full developed people who were intelligent and perceptive but they were not immune to manipulation or bad choices like it wasn't patronizing to them as as characters and so I was very much all in on Noriko and Yuka that first (laughs) that first watch Um, And as I got a little older and my relationship with my father kind of shifted and grew in different ways, uh, you know, rewatching it and really seeing how Tetsuzo is kind of going through it through the whole movie and what he's experiencing. Um, And then more recently, uh, 
really, the last time I watched it, I just got so wrapped up in understanding Kumiko as a character. Just kind of, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, she's the bad guy. But that's such a reductive way to look at her. You know, she's the product of neglect and all of these other things that made her what she is, even though she facilitates so much pain in this. Yes, I found her character and that performance really compelling. Like very, very, I love that actress does such a fantastic job in that role. It's a very hard yes. role and she brings a lot to the table as it were. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. all, all yeah. the performances in this are incredible, I think. They do so many subtle things in this to really get you to believe such an absurd kind of like world. Yeah, it's super bizarre and over the top, and you kind of are like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, that that is the DNA it shares in common with Suicide Club to me, is they both are like, every few minutes, you're like, excuse me? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but in very different ways. Yes. Yeah. It's very hard to kind of wrap the head around, like, the motivations that are going on here, because it's mm-hmm. not a movie that, it, like, it doesn't ex- it doesn't provide any easy answers at all. Uh, and it feels like sometimes the answers that they are providing are just like, well, this is an answer from this perspective. But right. if we peel back another layer or another curtain or introduce like a, a different character, then we would get a completely different answer or solution to what we're seeing on the screen, which I found found really fascinating because there are times where I'm like, someone lay this out for me. Like, I really want to know what I should be experiencing right now. And it wasn't like Sono's not interested in doing that. Right. And I think a lot of the horror in this is from the fact that it's causing you to ask these really heavy questions and there are no answers to them. And those those questions just kind of linger in the air after you're finished watching it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It feels like they there's a bunch of these characters and you're getting their reactions, but you're not seeing what they're seeing necessarily. You're just seeing how they react to it, which is really unusual and frustrating and compelling. Uh, it's yeah. like, I, I, you know, we always have a section here where it's like, what other movies does the, do you see this in or does this remind you of? And like, this movie is very unique. I was struggling. To, mm-hmm. There's certain themes yeah. or character relationships and stuff that I could relate to other stuff that I've seen, but it really kind of, it's very different, even from a lot of like other J horror films that I've seen. Um, it's it's interesting. It was interesting watching a, a interview with Sono uh, about this movie in Suicide Club, and he brings a lot of swagger to his interview. Like he doesn't necessarily look at the camera, and he's super low key. But he's like, you just mentioned other J horror, where he's like, yeah, I don't really like a lot of Japanese horror. Like I find them really boring. Like this is the stuff. I'm interested in he even like starts to downplay his other contributions to J horror. He's like, that's just a straightforward J horror movie. Like it's pretty boring. This is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in here. Um, So it was kind of interesting to hear him kind of like bring a lot of swagger to this one or talk about how different it was culturally from everything else that was out at the time. Because this is like, coming off like Ringu and The Grudge and Pulse. Um, Pulse might be the best analogy, the best kind of like one-to-one comparison for anything here, I think in terms of like what we've watched or associate with J-Horror. 
some. I, I thought of Perfect Blue a little bit as well, mostly because I think a lot of films at this time, it was literally the turn of the century. There was a bunch of new technology being introduced, and there's a lot of themes in this and in Pulse and, in, and even in Ringu and The Grudge and stuff that relate to like technophobia and what is the internet going to do to us? What doors is it going to open? Um, but that seems like a a super more of a superficial thing that they all have in common versus mm-hmm. like really in the um, philosophical nature of the film. And this is also a really philosophical movie. There's a lot of like monologuing and thoughts yes. about stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've seen people complain that this is a character is just narrating every action they're taking, but I think that's also kind of reducing that down because a lot of it's them narrating what they're doing and why they're doing it. So you can kind of get into that perspective. So they, it forces you to get into the perspective of characters mm-hmm. you might not otherwise want to relate yeah. to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I often felt like the narration contradicted what you were seeing on screen, like yes. how things are playing out visually versus what their own inner monologue was were two far different things from one another, which I really liked about this. Mm-hmm. I, and Laura, you just mentioned like the early days of the internet. I kind of wanted to ask like Holly, cause you mentioned how formative this movie was for you when you were going through your own period of like discovering your identity. Did you have like any experiences like with the early days of the internet and say use that or chat rooms where you could find maybe like-minded persons that might not have been in abundance locally but all of a sudden find like there are thousands like me out there. It's it's so funny because yeah, one of the things I wanted to bring up was I related a lot to this movie because my best friend of 20 plus years at this point, I met on an internet forum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so funny because like it was probably around the same time this movie was taking place and she, you know, lived out in like Minnesota and since then you know we've we visit each other every year still we were in each other's weddings like this kind of thing where it's like I I look at that and I sometimes and I think the most recent time I watched it I kind of thought to myself how fortunate that I met this wonderful person on there and there wasn't like a Kumiko on the other side you know like <laughs> yeah. it's such a sobering thought to think that there could have been someone really with ill intentions on the other side but i just happened to find like my lifelong best friend on there (laughs) yeah or she's playing a really long con (laughs) yeah you know what she's committed to the bit at this point (laughs) Uh, what's gonna take place the next time you get together you let us know (laughs) (laughs) it's been a while because of uh the covid years so yes 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 I, i i know it well um go ahead mike one of the things like when Laura and I were kind of like talking back and forth about this and like we were like, we got to watch Suicide Club because we were struggling a little bit to see like, all right. And I think I, I kind of put it in this box uh, when we were coming up with the theme of like how it depicts like indoctrination. And I was wondering, was there anything about this that jumped out to you uh, when it comes to like the cult-like feel to it or the kind of like cult of personality feel like what stands out to you in this movie um one of the things that really jumped out to me and this is just something that i feel like i've rarely seen in other movies but the idea of um using the internet as a recruitment tool um that's something that i feel like culturally we're only just starting to sort of contend with how the Mm -hmm. internet can be used you know with like 
you know, Reddit and Twitter kind of collecting these groups of people that have these kind of more extremist views. And this was like so early in the internet days and he was already kind of pointing out like, hey, this is something that can really be used for this kind of like extremist gathering. Um, and that really jumped out to me because I feel like we still don't really see that talked about in, in media and film as much. Yeah, absolutely. It's very prescient in terms of like, <laughs> like anticipating the worst possible outcomes that we are right. still and like the darker corners of the internet and these mysterious websites. And like, you know, I, I, in this one, I kind of I like that it was just this BBS, this sort of innocent looking BBS system, because that's really what it is. It's still like that. It's like 8chan and sites like that. It's never, you know, a lot of movies from this era and even Suicide Club, it's like a mysterious website that's got like dark imagery on it or whatever but really it always just ends up being these hidden in plain sight internet forums and places where you it's very insidious right and it's often people who don't really understand the technology that are missing it you know it's you see yuka figures it out right away because she understands the technology (laughs) Yeah, whereas the dad is like takes him for fucking ever to put the pieces <laughs> of the puzzle together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another thing is, I just like I think, I mean, Mike, I'm sure you'll talk a little bit more on all the things, but just those kinds of things that you associate with kind of being indoctrinated or like radicalized. It's the idea of she kind of has that initial like like love bombing where like you know Kumiko yep. pays all this attention to her. And then she sort of does this, like, us versus them thing with her whole speech about the stray cats. And, like, we have to form a family like those cats do. Um, There's all those things that just, it's subtle. I don't think it does this, um, it doesn't go right in your face. But you can see how that slow kind of, like, the whole, like, boiling frog effect. She's slowly turning Mm -hmm. up the heat on Noriko until, like, she's totally lost her sense of self by the end. Because she's just working that magic so slowly. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they thrust her right in. Like they disorient her. You see how easy it is to get disoriented because they whisk her from house to house to house. And by the third home, like she is actually made party to it. They're like, oh, this is your granddaughter. And you see her confusion. But Mm -hmm. there's this instinct in all of us like, all right, we got to go along to get along, even if we're uncomfortable sometimes. And once you do that once, it becomes much easier to do it the second time, the third time, until you're like, don't even realize you're doing that anymore. So yeah, I definitely saw that aspect of it as well. Um. Awesome. Um, Hallie, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss about this movie that we did not ask you about? Um, One thing... Another thing that I liked about this, and I'm glad that we're doing it as part of this kind of like theme for you guys, is I think it's good to see a film that depicts cults that kind of divorces it from the religious baggage that you often have. Um, Sometimes it can get really difficult to discuss cults without people either getting defensive or kind of like talking about one religion versus another. And this one really kind of focuses on the social aspects of it rather than kind of dealing with the religious baggage that you can sometimes have with something like you know the wicker man where you're talking about pagans versus christians yes yes this is a wildly different take on it but the underlying sort of themes and behaviors are the same you know which is really interesting so that's a really really good point i think it's the first time we're covering it we're doing all foreign movies this 
for this topic yeah, as well. You're right, we have right. like British, uh, Japanese, and, I- and Irish? is it Australia? Irish, I believe. Let's say. I, I don't know. So. Oh God, I don't remember. <laughs> this is gonna. I just saw a clip where like an interviewer calls Cillian Murphy um, British, and he gets like furious at him. Uh, you know, so now I'm afraid that we're mm-hmm. okay. Wait, we gotta check Saint Maud. Because <laughs> uh, I think Rose Glass is Irish. I'm just going off of that name. <laughs> oh God, what the hell? What? Uh, it was released in the United Kingdom. British Film Institute. Holly, thank you again for joining us and suggesting this film. Uh, do you want to talk about your website where you write about horror? Tell us a little bit what it's about and where folks can find it. Um, yeah, I write some like reviews, essays, a lot of you know thoughts on horror movies. Uh, the website's thebechdelscream.net. Um, I focused a lot on kind of obscure foreign horror. Like I really like horror, like, obscure J-horror and things directed by women and just kind of things that otherwise might fly under the radar. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a piece I wrote about Noriko that I'm really proud of, so that would be a good place to start if people are listening to this episode. Awesome. That sounds great. Let's link that in our notes, too. Let's find that and link it in our notes. The BechdelScream.net, which I said before we recorded, is something that feels very up Jen's alley, so I will (laughs) make sure she she takes a look. So. Would you mind, not to put you on the spot, would you mind sharing maybe one or two like under the radar movies that you would kind of recommend to our listeners or something that you might point to as like a go-to? Um, for something like Japanese horror, I think that especially if you're into um, some of the bigger directors, like if you like Pulse, some of Kurosawa's other works that were less known or good. I really love this one um, made-for-TV horror movie he did called Seance. It's mm-hmm. really good. It's just like a simple ghost story, but it's executed so well. It's Ooh. just it's a favorite of mine. That sounds um, up my alley. And if you are interested in something like Takashi Miike, but you aren't necessarily into the gore, you could watch uh, The Happiness of the Katakuris, which is a favorite of mine. It's the horror comedy musical that's a remake of like a korean film so it's it's honestly an absolutely good time (laughs) it's like a kid's movie it's it's, so much fun that's insane i love it (laughs) it's such a good time um and there's probably a bunch of others i'm forgetting but like um well we we put you on the spot that's (laughs) always hard those are two i haven't seen that i immediately want to go watch so (laughs) and it's great it is that time of the year when like our non-horror loving friends and family are like hey what should i watch and it always feels like a test it always feels like <laughs> yeah. so much pressure yes i feel like charlie in I feel like charlie in front of the big whiteboard and it's always sunny like listing everything out um <laughs> and they're just like so, i'm gonna just watch halloween uh i'll see you later yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. sounds good <laughs> well holly thank you so much for joining us we absolutely loved having you on and, and contributing to this discussion it definitely gave us you know, because I, you know, some different perspectives on this as well. Uh, and thank you for being a listener and a patron. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for talking about this. It's such a favorite of mine. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Awesome. Well, thank we you so much. Hope Allie. we do it justice. <laughs> we hope well. we do it well. Okay. So now we are going to give you our synopsis of Noriko's dinner table. Warning to everybody, we are going to heavily spoil the movie, both in the synopsis as well with our as well as with our discussion of the movie. 
If you haven't seen this one yet, go ahead and check it out on demand and then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. So here is your spoiler warning. Uh, Make sure you do not hire a fake family to come and tell you the ending and all the good bits of a movie before you get a chance to see them on your own. Lara, take it away. Also, just restating our content warning here, suicide is a major theme of this film and will be discussed a lot throughout the synopsis and episode. I also apologize in advance for butchering the pronunciation of every single name. Noriko is an introspective teen with a rebellious streak. She wants to leave her quiet seaside town and conservative family for the messy and adventurous streets of Tokyo. Her father doesn't understand her, thinking she'll get pregnant in the big city. Mom seems pretty checked out, too. Younger sister Yuka doesn't understand why Noriko wants to leave so badly. Noriko retreats into the online world of ofhaiko.com, a popular website for teenage girls. Just a wee reminder that this movie is from 2005. One night during a blackout, Noriko packs a bag, hops on a train, and heads to Tokyo to meet up with an online buddy. At a train station, locker number 54, Noriko meets her friend, Kamiko, a cool, punky, and compelling young woman. Then she meets Kamiko's whole damn family. What the heck is this? The family, mom and dad, Kamiko and little brother, immediately whisk Noriko away in a van and bring her to meet their grandmother. At first it seems like a heartwarming family reunion, but it takes a turn for the weird when they visit grandma number two, then a dying grandpa who turns out is just pretending, and on and on and on. Noriko gets swept into the family LARPing, finding some emotional gratification she never found with her real family. Turns out this family is a bunch of paid actors. Kamiko runs a family rental service, hired by grieving and lonely persons who just want to connect with the illusion of family. Six months go by. We see 54 teenage girls jumping in front of a speeding subway car, aka the opening scene of the film's predecessor, Suicide Club, in which Noriko is inserted as a horrified witness and Kamiko as a cult leader figure of some sort. Noriko has formally joined the family rental service and is now going by the name Mitsuko. Shortly thereafter, Yuka decides to run away from home to find her sister. She leaves a trail of clues for her father with the hope that he'll discover them, but also the expectation that he'll be too alienated from her or her sister's interests and motivations to solve the puzzle. Their father, Tetsuzo, tries to keep up appearances and act like nothing has happened, despite his grief. However, after his wife commits suicide, he can no longer keep his head in the sand. He looks back on memories of their family life and realizes how unhappy his two daughters were, despite his and his wife's confidence that everything was howdy-doody and finerino. Tetsuzo then launches a plan to find his daughters, as he finally discovers Yuka's clues. He becomes obsessed with this shadowy suicide club that's been reported in the news and gathers even more clues, P.I. style, not Blue's Clues style. Finally, he tracks down Kamiko and accosts her in a public square. She gives him the number of her family rental service to call so that his questions may be answered. Next, Tetsuzo meets a member of the suicide circle at a coffee shop. The man denies the existence of the cult and says a bunch of other ominous stuff. As Tetsuzo looks around, he realizes that all the coffee shop customers are cult members. He's in over his head. We discover that the cultists will willingly go to their deaths at the hands of their clients if that is what their role calls for. Meanwhile, Tetsuzo launches a plan to retrieve his daughters from the cult by enlisting his friend to hire the family service and renting an apartment that he turns into an exact replica of his daughter's childhood home. 
Kamiko is wise to Tetsuzo's plan, but decides to play along. The trio arrive at the apartment to meet their client, while Tetsuzo hides in a cabinet and watches through a crack in the door. Stuck in the closet. The two sisters act like everything is fine, although they're unsettled by the apartment's uncanny resemblance to their childhood home. When Kamiko leaves to purchase meat for dinner, Tetsuzo finally emerges, and the man he hired to play daddy pieces the fuck out. He calls the girls by their names, but they will only answer to their new names given to them by the organization. Noriko acts terrified and insists she has never met Tetsuzo before, getting increasingly agitated. Kamiko returns shortly thereafter, along with a group of cultists who attack Tetsuzo. As the violence escalates, Noriko dissociates, drooling on the balcony and watching the snow fall. Despite the overwhelming number of attackers, an enraged Tetsuzo manages to ward off and kill the men one by one, leaving the apartment a bloody, gore-strewn mess. There's a moment of what the fuck just happened as the two sisters, Kamiko and Tetsuzo, all regard each other. But Yuka pleads for more time and for the family dinner to continue. She says everyone is acting like a lion, and for a little while, she wants them all to act like rabbits. We cut to the apartment looking clean and orderly, the family no longer covered in blood. They sit around the table enjoying a happy family dinner and discussion, though they make no reference to what just happened, fully engaged in this ephemeral role play. This is the opposite of what we saw at the outset of the movie where the family engaged in minimal conversation and were quick to cut off any sort of deep conversation. After dinner, everyone goes to bed, tired, stuffed with food, and seemingly fulfilled. Yuka feels like she can leave now to begin a journey of self-discovery, and does just that, sneaking out of the house before dawn. Mitsuko slash Noriko wakes up after Yuka leaves, silently thanking her sister for helping her rediscover who she is. She is no longer Mitsuko. She is Noriko. And this is her dinner table. That was the movie. All right, now we're going to do our feelings check. And this is when we talk about our first time watching this movie and what our initial impressions and takeaways are. So, Laura, can you talk about the first time that you watched Noriko's Dinner Table? Why, yes, I can. It was the other night for this podcast. (laughs) Um, uh, This was a first time watch for me. Uh, As we kind of discussed in the interview with Holly, there's a lot of themes packed into this movie. I feel like I'm still uh, digesting it. It's a little dinner table joke. Ha 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 ha. Okay, I'll stop. Um, So, but yes, there's a lot going on, and I feel like I would almost need like additional rewatches to fully unpack everything that's in there. unlike Suicide Club, which I watched just because it's been on my list forever. I thought this was the appropriate time to watch it. Um, This is, that movie is way more of like a horror movie, like horror, shock, gore, you know, from the first scene to like literally every scene. It's so over the top with grotesque and transgressive. This movie, on the other hand, is really subtle and quiet until the last act. Um, I did spend most of it feel like I was watching more of like a coming of age drama with police procedural elements about missing girls, but it really came alive for me in the scenes between Noriko and Kamiko, uh, which I just realized their names rhyme, <laughs> um, during their family rental vignettes and sort of developing air quotes friendship. Um, I loved watching the interplay between those two actors and I thought, um, that was where I really like could feel myself sit up in my chair and go, what's what's happening? Um, which is, you know, to me, the sort of physiological indicator that you're getting into something is when you literally are like, <laughs> like if you were a dog, your ears would perk up. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
great performances from everyone involved. We sort of said this already, but the dad and mom both broke my heart. Yuka broke my heart. I really felt Noriko's sort of sad girl estrangement. She reminded my, me of myself at that age a lot. Um, and the actress uh, Sugumi as Kamiko was so compelling and, and like twisted and evil and weird, like kind of Lady Joker. But at the same time, like you really understood where she was coming from. I could see teenage me getting sucked into a cult by her for sure. Um, especially with like the punk outfits and stuff at that age, I would have oh, been yeah. like, oh my God, <laughs> she's so cool. Yeah. Um, Kamiko in that punk outfit did some things I, well i mean, I mean both of them is... look great in those outfits and i mean but but the that actress is so beautiful too and she's got such a like unusual kind of like those wide really wide eyes like anya taylor joy where they're just moving across, like to each side of her head but you're like you're hypnotizing me with your eyes yeah. um that's just a weird thing that i said now you know what goes through my brain um okay uh, and then <laughs> I don't know how to transition out of that into my last point. I just wanted to say, I, I literally just discovered this while putting my notes together for this movie, and it really bums me out because it's like, God damn it, this is why we can't have nice things. Apparently, there earlier just this year, there's a bunch of sexual misconduct allegations that came out against the director Sono and one of his producers. I just feel the need to state that out loud in case other people are like, why are you covering this shit from mm -hmm. this known, uh, you know, known raper? Um, <laughs> sorry. Is that what they are? Is it's, that what it, it, there's the, the, I don't, I didn't look too into it too deeply, but it sounded like sexual assault and that or like, or like sexual misconduct sort of vaguely covered. But then the producer apparently was like, Weinstein style like pressuring people into favors for in exchange for casting kind of stuff which just gives us all an unseemly air obviously these are allegations I don't know many of the details but you know I, I tend to uh especially that era of Holly you know of, of filmmaking in Hollywood was rife with this shit so I can't imagine that the Japanese film industry was very different than the American right. film industry so it, it's just I'm just putting it out there this is very recent from a filmmaker that's been um, sort of noted and lauded in cult and horror circles for, for, for decades. So I am just giving voice to it. Um, <laughs> it sucks. It sucks. Yeah, and it just sucks. Yeah. It's one of those things because I, I had never heard that before. Uh, and I tend to believe yes. when Pete, when, especially when multiple persons yes. come out and say like this person assaulted me right. or this person subjected me this. And it sucks because his movies are so empathetic Yeah, and his movies are like so empathetic towards young women yeah. that to see that or read that, like it's fucking terrible. Yeah. I've, I've only seen a handful of his movies, but he's one of those filmmakers who are like, I should do a deep dive into his work because I've enjoyed everything I've watched. And then it just makes it that much harder to kind of want to do that because it feels like it's built on a house of cards. No, I mean, absolutely. And I, I felt this way because when I was like a teen, early teenage girl, like 14, 15, I found Roman Polanski movies and I really loved them because and especially like Rosemary's Baby is so empathetic to a female protagonist. And when I got a little older and learned about all the shit that happened with him it was like what the fuck like why how is it that the person who made this movie did this thing because it seems so divergent from their the, the you know the, the their artistic output and that's just something yeah. that it's like i know we're gonna have to keep dealing with because it's gonna keep happening um and mm -hmm. it fucking sucks ass so 
uh, watch free versions of these movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say that there's a YouTube rip of both this movie and Suicide Club, yes. and they are about the same quality as like the re- the rip you would get if you like were to rent the movie yeah. digitally as well. So they're, yeah, they're both low budget movies from the early two thousands. They're that kind of mm-hmm. lo fi feel I really liked, you know, visually. Yeah. But you don't need to get like a HD version of it. You can just enjoy yeah. enjoy the ripped free versions very very much. Um, so this was also a first time watch for me so much so that like leading up to this episode i think every time i said this is the next movie we're doing i got the title of it wrong (laughs) um i think i called it like noriko's secret dinner (laughs) like just could not get it right noriko's Uh, platter of food noriko's diner (laughs) just yeah you know it's like alice's diner but (laughs) Japanese. I was sitting um, in the table and my dad killed some guys. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I was excited to cover this movie because I have like enjoyed everything I've seen from Sion Sono. Like the Boston Underground Film Fest, typically, like if he has a new movie coming out, like they were showing it. So I got to see uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell, uh, The World of Kinoko. Uh, cold fish so i'd already seen like a handful of his films before this and been like this is like a filmmaker that i want to dive into especially because a lot of his movies kind of deal with like peeling back the layers of like the inner secret lives of persons yes uh where they present one way to the external world but there's a lot more going on uh internally and i thought this would be a perfect film for that and there is a lot going on in this movie um it's basically broken up structurally into five different chapters where you're following a different character in each chapter or diving you know following one leaving them to the side for a bit and then diving back into their world in a different chapter until it all converges uh and for the last 20 to 30 minutes um and it's a lot to take in because like, just as you start to feel like I'm getting a grasp on the inner workings of this person, it smashes to black. All right, chapter three. And you're like, let's do this all yes. over <laughs> again now. And, you know, you're watching it and I'm still processing what I saw 15 minutes ago and trying to make sense of it. But I also love movies like that when they're well done. So it didn't feel like a cheat. Uh, it didn't feel like... Uh, Sono's not providing any information to glean and go off of. It just felt like he wanted to kind of weave in and out of uh, these different persons. I did feel like that first hour in particular was really strong. Like everything leading up to Noriko gathering the courage to leave her family, uh, everything that like depicted, I know Holly, our guest, talked about, you know, being like very young and feeling like complicated feelings for your family when you're trying to strike out on your own as an individual, Mm -hmm. but also having like this oppression of your family expectations hanging over you. And the idea that like mom and dad always know best. Like, I know you want this, but this is what's best for you. The first hour dives the most into that. And then Noriko's own journey of self-discovery. And I thought that was like the strongest part of the movie. Um, I, It's funny. I had a really hard time finding empathy for the dad. 
And I know you and Holly both said how much you empathize with what he was going through. Because I just felt like he made a string of bad choices and then was like meant to kind of like deal with the consequences. And I felt like, and I guess we'll talk about it more when we talk about the movie itself, but I felt like he was kind of centering everything on himself. Um, And maybe that's my own shit to deal with, but that's, you know, maybe I'm doing some projection there. Um, Is someone who spent like a lot of years uh, in their late teens, early 20s, early college years trying to figure out who I was, especially since I lost my dad at 19. Mm -hmm. Um, This really hit in terms of like, okay, who am I? It almost like the stepfather when he says like, who am I here? Except uh, Noriko is much less of a mass murderer. (laughs) Yes, yes. The other... Somebody who is doing stuff with identity mass murders. Yep. And, and I do have a lot of thoughts on the dad that uh, we can definitely mm-hmm. get into during the yeah. film discussion. So, let's do, yeah. Yeah. But before we do that, let's dive like very briefly into our mental health topic this month. So, a couple weeks ago in our episode on The Wicker Man, we discussed like fundamentalism uh, and like the behavioral systems that accompany it. Like, basically, how do cults, you know, operate what kind of persons are prone to cults overall and what do we see is kind of the psychological mindset and we're going to do a little more of that today specifically we're going to talk a little bit about indoctrination and a very brief overview of like some of the techniques that cults or groups like this use in order to like recruit members in and then keep them under their thumb Kim so to me, it's like really fascinating to look at like who gets swept up in these movements. You kind of hope like we're all clear thinking, rational people. And sometimes when you hear some of the beliefs or practices of these organizations, like you hear like Scientologists believe that like we're all lizard people that, you know, we're going <laughs> to shed our skin. And Heaven's Gate was like, we're going to fly off to meet the great leader in the sky. And you think like, who is going to kind of believe this stuff and then you find out well persons really do um there's this perspective this idea or belief that cults actively recruit persons that are mentally ill and that's really misleading Mm -hmm. um for first they want relatively stable people to join because you know if you're a cult leader or you're running this kind of organization you need to be able to keep under everyone under control and you don't want to have a wild card or someone who's unpredictable or unstable joining in where you can't manipulate them Uh, and second you want persons that are able to function and work towards achieving the cult's goals uh, and of course like being able to donate or raise money like the idea is we got to keep the tills filled with green and we need people that are going to be able to do that so what these organizations are looking for they're looking for people that are in a crisis of some sort. They're looking for people that are suffering or going through a very vulnerable time. They're looking for persons who may exhibit good judgment or th- rational thinking most of the time, but right now those areas are clouded and that is making them prime targets. Young adults that are still discovering themselves are often targeted, especially college students. Number one, They may be living away from a home for the first time. They may be away from all their comforts. They are away from their support network. And they are kind of flailing around a little bit. I remember, 
you know, my first semester of college being away and how exciting and exhilarating it was, but also how scary it was. I remember having a roommate that up and left in the middle of the night and just brought only his baseball glove with him (laughs) saying, I'm going to try out for the New York Yankees. Oh, dear. And how scary that was because he didn't play baseball. (laughs) That's Yeah, that's a bit much. I, I, uh, I also remember on my campus, like, you couldn't turn a corner without some weird person coming up to you and trying to get you involved in like a club or a Mm -hmm. a house or an organization. And they all had those sort of wide staring eyes where they try to make really hard eye contact with you. And I'd be like, no, no, I would get, cause I was Jewish. So I'd get chased around by this group called the Lubavitchers that believe this one specific old guy was, was the Messiah. Um, and, and then there was others. I mean, it was just, it was like nonstop. Like I had strategies for finding places to hide so I could study mm-hmm. in peace from, from weird people trying to get me to join some organization. So I definitely think that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. And when you're young, you're just so much more prone to kind of like listen to some of these things. And I, I know that like, there somewhere out there there is a um uh, there is like a survey sheet when i was probably 19 i think it was like at Lollapalooza the year the smashing pumpkins played or i'm like send me more information on libertarianism oh, this yeah. sounds <laughs> yeah. this sounds great like, what a wonderful like idea do you like, yeah. want to stick it to the government <laughs> yeah do you like weed and hate paying taxes right. <laughs> do we have the political party for you um <laughs> I remember like Newbury Street in Boston, like right near Berkeley College and Boston University, like there was a Scientology temple. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point I got recruited like, hey, you should go here. We're just going to talk to you. There's a little survey. I'm like, sure, I'll go do that. I'll sign this thing. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this actually sounds pretty crazy. I probably shouldn't like there by the grace of God. Like I probably at this point could be doing a much different kind of podcast if I (laughs) walked in that door. Um, Measuring Thetans with Father Mike Snudian. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can you imagine it? I could be hanging with Tom Cruise and Elizabeth Moss right now. Uh, Wouldn't it be great? (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't that? That actually would kind of great eh, i feel like they'd be really boring in reality but <laughs> probably like tom cruise just sits there and like stares at the wall until the cameras come on yes and then he's like watching me jump out of plane <laughs> um god he's gonna die for our entertainment and i am here for it so the other thing is like you get people that have been not only recently separated from their family and like going through like this real period of like self-discovery and who am i here or what personalities do I want to try on, even if it's only for a little bit of time? People that are abused or neglected or have a difficult time making secure attachments with family members growing up are often targeted, and they're, oh, they might be longing to make these connections. Um, Holly mentioned this, and I had it here in my notes, like love bombing Mm -hmm. is a technique that is often used. And it kind of plays out just like it sounds. It's like new relationship energy, but except of having like a lot of sex, you're getting like a lot of compliments from a bunch of weirdos. (laughs) Um, 
apologies to all cult members that might listen to our show or cult uh, leaders of course uh, or yes. if you're taking notes um <laughs> yes mm-hmm. and, and i think like someone's like, how do i do this <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent yeah. don't worry there's a lot written on this you can figure it out i believe in you um but i i want to ask about love bombing i think specifically i i've noticed that get thrown around the internet a lot in the same way as like gaslighting you know uh and i think that it's gotten some uh, inaccurate connotations that the thing that I've been seeing is like people are like oh if you're nice to someone or you say that you love them that is love bombing I think the thing that that get, that leaves out of the narrative is that it is then taken away from you and used to sort of almost make you like an addict to these yeah. these feelings um, and, and I think that that is a big part of it is like you're so amazing. I love you. You're the one for me. And then to withhold that affection and what will you do to get it back? This very manipulative mm-hmm. behavior. Um, so I just wanted to, to clarify that point. Oh, I would agree with that. And then the idea of making that affection conditional. Yes. Like, you know, I love you. You're amazing. You're the person for me. If you believe these certain things, if you Uh, fulfill these actions for me if you play this carefully crafted role that I have devised for you as long as you don't move outside of these parameters like I will give you all my affection and all of my attention Um, and, and the idea of like love bombing as it's used in relation to cults it's this idea that like you find this person who is stressed who's vulnerable who might be feeling insecure and you start to make them feel as special and appreciated as possible. Um, I mean, you see it with certain like certain movements, like podcast movements, like the Joe Rogan show. He taps into a very specific kind of like white male uh, 20-something, 30-something insecurity mm-hmm. where maybe like the world is changing around me and I don't feel a place in it anymore. And he's like, I am the guy that's asking the questions for all of you, bro. Like, you know, basically like we're all in, you know, it's a different kind of thing. But I do believe that at some point we're going to look at the MAGA movement and toxic masculinity and you're going to see like specific diagnoses and specific ailments, uh, mental health ailments that are going to be assigned to them. Um, I've treated MAGA clients and I will say that like to a person, they have suffered from some sort of tremendous emotional and physical abuse Mm -hmm. growing up. Mm -hmm. And it has led to this feeling of I'm not good enough. The world has left me behind and I've never been loved. And it's sad in some ways. Like you can to a degree I can feel for them, but yeah. It gets to the point of like, okay, you need to look outward yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it just speaks to how I mean, Mag or QAnon or whatever it whatever the rapper is, they're all engaging in the same tactics. Um and like Holly mentioned about this being this movie sort of seeing ahead of its time how the internet could be used to hit lots of people. Um, I think we're really seeing that take place and it's all kind of getting mixed into this toxic stew with elements of white supremacy, no. with elements of toxic masculinity um, and, and insane belief systems. There's also like a lot of older people are getting sucked in. You know, I think often what we were just discussing, you see cults targeting younger people, but basically any phase in your life in which you're undergoing change, 
you are vulnerable. Like, I think when you get, if you hit a certain age, I mean, I'm feeling this even in my late thirties, like, you know, it's just, oh shit, the, I'm, I'm aging. Every, everything is, is different now. And the, I'm, I'm not it anymore. It's the, the grandpa Simpson, like, what is it like one day you're going to say, well, you're not with it anymore. And what, what's it is new and scary. I can't, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but it's, I it's, know what you're saying. It's yep. that, you know, and I, and I just think it's like, if, if you're thinking about, what to be aware of it's like just be aware that of when you feel vulnerable and that that's mm-hmm. a that's a time when somebody could yeah. swoop in and take advantage of that yeah so yeah and these these kind of like recruiters become the i got you fam person like they're always there for them they're always backing them up they're always what you're doing is you're making that vulnerable vulnerable person dependent on their affection one of the articles i read was like how these members like hang outside of like campus mental health centers oh, God. and as persons are coming in to get treatment they would kind of like accost them and start chatting them up and try to like lead them away from getting the help they need because that person in a vulnerable state is like oh this person's going to support me they're going to be my go-to person so disgusting yeah. and manipulative yeah. And then once a person is in, they start using like resocialization techniques to keep those members under their thumb. Um, and the idea is like they're taking the person's personality and their core beliefs and they're restructuring them and building them back up. So they mirror that of the group. Like there is no individual except for the leader. There is the leader and then there is the group. And the group act as one mind and one body. And it becomes an echo chamber where any deviation from those views are discounted, where allegiance to the leader is required. And they use like shame, guilt, peer pressure. All of these are used uh, as techniques in order to get members of the cult to obey. So the last thing I had was basically a brief bit of research I came, I read where it suggested about 70% of cult members are women. Uh, Dr. Janja Lalik, a California-based psychologist, has written and studied cult behaviors for over 25 years, and she likens the appeal of cults to that of an abusive relationship, where a partner can be caring one moment and then incredibly violent, intimidating, or manipulative the next, and it keeps the partner forever on edge and in a constant state of fear and panic, but also in constant need for that affection and that idea of if I could just act like they want me to, the abuse would go away. It's my fault that I'm being abused. Mm -hmm. So in one of her articles, she talks about the angle cult used to recruit women. And she says, the modern cult sales pitch really taps into our desire to better ourselves, to improve our careers, to be a better speaker, to look prettier, to look thinner. And I think women today are still very vulnerable to those appeals, which makes a lot of sense. We've talked about this before in how with advertising and marketing, how it is mostly pitched to young and impressionable women. I think we talked about that in our suicide episode Mm. um, or one of the suicide episodes on how marketing often targets women and can lead them to self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember which episode we talked about it in, but I know we talked a lot about this in some of the body dysmorphia stuff as Mm. well. Um, Yeah. And I think that, 
what really resonates with me here, and we were just discussing it with the love bombing thing, is how similar it is to an abusive relationship. Just because you're in a group dynamic doesn't make it not a relationship. The same psychological factors can apply and can sometimes be even more difficult to extricate yourself from because you've got mm-hmm. a whole community that you've been integrated with. Yeah. Yeah, so that is our talk this week. We'll be back with a little bit more when we talk about St. Maud in a couple of weeks to wrap up. This has been a fun topic to kind of dive into. Sometimes I really enjoy these topics more than just like a very straightforward mental health topic. Like yeah. there's just a broader, sometimes like a broader and more diverse like pool of research or uh, articles to kind of pull from. And I find this kind of group think really fascinating. Yeah. But we're going to move into our movie discussion uh, and how we see what we just discussed depicted in Noriko's dinner table, which I think is going to be interesting because, Laura, you and I were both saying how, like, it's there, we can see it, but sometimes you kind of have to squint or turn your head to a certain angle to really see it depicted. Um a lot of heavy lifting is left in the hands of the viewer. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. So what stands out to you the most? Or what was one of the first thing that called to you when you when we watched this? Yeah, I, I mean, in, in terms of the angle of cult indoctrination in this movie, we discussed this a little with Holly as well. The movie sort of skips showing us a lot of the indoctrination, except for those early scenes, in favor of, of showing us the before and the after and really focusing on the kind of people and why they get sucked into this dynamic. Um, specifically, really, a lot of it is anchored on Noriko. Uh, uh, and then the sort of aftermath of what it does to her and her family. Um, I think even if you've seen Suicide Club, which sort of rotates around the same shadowy organization or circle uh, that is triggering these mass suicides, um, that movie also doesn't do much to enlighten you on like what the deal with that cult is or what its day-to-day practices are like. You just get these kind of keyhole glimpses into moments of it. In 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 Noriko, it's the um, the initial stuff with like the family, what uh, the family rental business that Kamiko is running, um, and then you also get a little bit at, at the beginning and at the end where you start to see. Kamiko in these sort of discussion circles with these other girls with the you know rabbit there's a lot of sort of philosophical talk um I I think uh, I almost feel like the writer director was working through the allure of death itself or trying to explain or get into the mindset of why people commit these acts as part of a cult like uh, like (laughs) Kamalt cult ritual suicide like kind of more of on an existential level he seemed more interested in the existential impact of it than the you know nitty-gritty practices of what they do to break a person down or indoctrinate them that's kind of what I the conclusion I came to after watching both this and Suicide Club yeah I was fascinated by those early scenes with the family in that you see Noriko is if not a very depressed young woman she's a very kind of like lonely and aloof young woman and how her father like either refuses to see it or is unable to see it and there's that scene at the dinner table where he talks about the two cousins that went to Tokyo and immediately got pregnant Mm -hmm. uh, when they were going to university and that's what 
Noriko wants to do. Like she wants to leave this small town, go to college in Tokyo and experience not only a bigger, a better education, but also experience like the um, world at large. And he's like, oh, if you go to Tokyo, you're just immediately going to get pregnant. Like they're passing out, mm-hmm. you know, babies basically once you step <laughs> off the train there. Yeah, they shove them into you and then you have to give yeah. birth to them. It's fucked up. Right. I- it's really weird. I feel like the dad is like such a simple man in so many ways. Like he's like, I like this little town. I lo- everything is perfect here, and he refuses to observe when they or react to things when they start to move outside of the the lines of his coloring book. Um, that is this fantasy that he has of this pastoral small town life, um, and and I think you know that that's where he just really doesn't see i mean and they, and they 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 illustrate that point very literally with the picture the mother is drawing i mean she she's you know doing kind of the same thing in a lot of ways you know he's just more he seems to be more in the driver's seat of it of the family dynamic but she like literally like they take a photo and you see how checked out noriko especially is and it's like noriko's looking off camera um yuka is looking at noriko and then mom and dad are just like totally oblivious and then she and then when she paints the photo she paints them as this smiling happy family so it's it is very much just like an unwillingness to observe what is actually happening so that you can preserve this fantasy yeah you even see with with noriko and i thought that was one of the more powerful moments in the movie when the father finally puts two and two together and he sees the photograph versus the portrait and it breaks his heart yes at that point because it's he finally realizes a how unhappy both his daughters were and b how blind to that he and his wife were and probably how responsible they were for that unhappiness as well by kind of keeping his daughters under his thumb. Um, you even see like her teenage rebellion where like Tetsuzo's job is a news reporter and Noriko is so dismissive of it because he's not reporting on like the hard news like politics or war or famine like he's doing writing up these little fluff pieces about the library or dog shows or like how pretty the windmills are mm-hmm. in the spring and you know Noriko um rebels against that by like joining the school newspaper and being the editor of it and trying to do like hard news as much as she can within a school paper. Um, So you see these rebellions, you see why someone like her might be so, who's never been on her own, who is longing for something much bigger than her, uh, why she might be susceptible to someone like Kamiko who seems like so worldly and cool like the thing about kamiko when you meet her like she just seems like such a badass yes that like oh my god how would you not want to follow her around no yeah and that's i mean i I was really at that age i was like very nerdy and like introverted and weird and i but i loved like punk music and goth stuff Mm -hmm. and i was you know finding stuff on the internet and i just wanted so badly to be that cool so like the idea that that idea is very felt very real to me um like you could have easily just got drawn in by the the wrong person uh, at that age because you just so badly want to break free from your nerdy shell especially and you know they didn't get into this with with Kamiko I think it would have been you know just so, on some level I was like 
she's a little bratty because, you know, she has it pretty easy and, and is acting like she has it extremely bad. Um, but I mean, I feel like that's also a very teenage thing to do. Uh, you know, I think part of why I so desperately wanted to shed my early identity is because of how badly bullied I was, you know, for like literally every single thing and the way I looked and the way I acted and the, what I was interested in. And so putting on like the punk goth kind of thing was almost like a suit of armor uh, and, and being attracted to people who just like didn't give a fuck, even though like I gave all the fucks, you know, like there was, mm-hmm. there's some dynamic there that that's what I, I kind of wanted to see maybe a little more of that. Um, and I think just to get into like the, the dad and mom thing, like, I, I mean, I felt bad for them because the punishment didn't fit the crime. It was like such an outsized punishment for being just kind of like vaguely checked out parents, you mm-hmm. know, like they I really believe that they loved their children and that they wanted the best for them. They were just kind of idiots, you know, who just like refused to see what was right in front of them and that this could have been, you know, such a less dramatic series of events you know i think that that's a pretty common dynamic is to see like you know the kid rebelling against the staid ways of the parents and i could see in a in a different if she had run into somebody other than kamiko she goes to tokyo for a while she goes to college she comes back and then has a reunion with her parents and realizes like you know they really loved us and and they just were not emotionally mature enough to see where we were coming from and it's so so it's to me it's just really really tragic because when the dad and mom do sort of realize what's happening and they've suffered this incredible loss like they it destroys them the mother kills herself and the father is like so devastated by it and yes he doesn't (laughs) like you know his behavior is not he doesn't rise to the occasion at all uh but and he's just kind of a dipshit but i just felt so bad for him it's like this is so much more punishment than his behaviors have earned him (laughs) you know i i hear what you're saying and i think like as you say that i can feel a bit more for him because i know when i watch this like i had like a viscerally unpleasant reaction to the father and i'll say like one of the hardest things as a parent especially for me is like as a parent like We've been through a lot of the things our kids are going through. And obviously with every generation, there are new challenges. Like I was fortunate enough, like when I was bullied as a kid, at least I didn't have to experience online bullying Mm -hmm. where I could make it into the confines of my house and then be safe until I walked out again, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're now with online bullying. It's so pervasive and everywhere. But as a parent, like you see everything your kids go through developmentally and you're like, yep, I've been there. I've done that. You should listen to me. Like, I'm going to give you advice and you should listen to me. And you're like, why won't they just listen? Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that, like, there are just things that as people we have to experience in our own in order to formulate our own thoughts on it, in order to formulate our own coping, coping mechanisms on it. Otherwise, like, we don't really grow as people. We're just at that point, like, a sim character that someone has manipulated and maneuvered to act a certain way because we've plugged certain thoughts or ideas into them. And it's hard because there are times where, like, I'm like, you know, to my own daughter, like, just do this thing. Like, why can't you just listen? And then realizing that, like, 30 years ago, 
the shoe was on the other foot and Mm -hmm. like that would have been my parents with me and I think I do a much better job of listening than my dad did um I think that was something he really struggled with because of his own upbringing Mm -hmm. as one of like four boys of two parents that escaped a genocide there was not a lot of like lovey-dovey talks that went on in the home Yeah, yeah um and I kind of like got the brush back from that. And I try my best to like be the person I tell my parents to be when I'm counseling them. Yeah. But I know that I fail sometimes. I know that I fail. And I found myself projecting my own failures onto Tetsuzo. Like, why can't you find this information? Like, why are you, your daughters are right in front of you in this apartment, which you've done up to look like your own home which is so traumatizing and fucked up like (laughs) like what are you doing here and then he's like cowering in the closet and he's almost like they have to command him to come out like his friend has to order him to come out yes it's so strange i i just yeah it's truly pathetic and it, it just i felt very bad for him in those times because i just saw somebody who was so unequipped to handle what was happening mm-hmm. and it just it, it for, so yes like he definitely is a disappointment to his family and his daughters and doesn't rise to the occasion but i'm just like oh my god this can we just put this man out of his misery <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like I just felt so bad and then just also to see him so like emasculated in front of his daughters and so like emasculated is the wrong word it's like because that sort of taps into like toxic masculinity ideas he's mm-hmm. just like he's just fails so hard in front of them that it's like oh my god I can't stand this uh it, it was truly painful for me to watch um uh I felt like I had another thought there also but you know again I as someone who's not a parent I guess it's a lot easier for me to just be forgiving and see him as human Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's everybody kind of drops the ball as hard as humanly possible in this scenario (laughs) and it's interesting that in a movie that is like filled with these very empathetic portrayals of young women like Noriko and Yuka Yuka and Kamiko I don't think like when Kamiko is portrayed as villainous it is often pulled back very quickly as well like it never settles on that depiction for too long Mm -hmm. so in a movie that is like extremely empathetic to how it portrays young women the mother is a blank slate. Like you really don't ever get to learn much about her. Like I think she's the only character you see for a significant amount of time that doesn't have a monologue of her own. Yeah. That never speaks directly to the camera about what she's feeling. And, you know, maybe there might be some other issues going on there with a Mr. Sono. Like yes. Possibly. Who could say? <laughs> so, but she is like, you know, what almost snaps Tetsuso out of his trance is because it's really fucked up to me is like when his second daughter leaves Mm -hmm. he still goes to work the next day like nothing has happened i'm like that is i think when it kind of like you did what now yeah um just total denial Mm -hmm. yeah you never really know the mother's pain until like a she prostrates herself before her husband and blames herself which to his credit he's like it's not your fault like he's very much in the team of like this is not your fault like we both made mistakes mm-hmm. uh, but then it's like she kills herself and that's like how she's defined yeah that character is definitely one of the less developed characters um i am not a huge 
fan of the monologues that are like the VO style monologues that everyone gets. I was I wrote in my notes somewhere that I feel like this is like a sort of mirror world version of a Mike Flanagan movie yeah, where everyone but that. everyone mm-hmm. delivers a monologue. This one it's like you get those I guess it's this is I forgive it in this movie because it is very intentional, but one of my least favorite things in a movie, a pet peeve, is getting uh, a narration of the character's thoughts versus just showing mm-hmm. us what, what they're going yeah. through or finding another way to deliver those thoughts. But that movie, this takes it to such an extreme that it doesn't feel lazy. Like, because normally that bothers me because it's lazy and it's usually some kind of glossing over uh, a more intelligent way to tell the story. This is like, this is the point of the movie is we are going to yeah. give you everyone's inner monologue. So this thing with the mom, I'm like, well, that would have really added to the runtime. <laughs> like, yeah. But I do think that she's kind of given a short shrift. Like, I think that he puts so much focus on like the daddy daughter thing. I mean, honestly, they could have gone on this journey together. She didn't have to kill herself. They could have both been there in Tokyo recreating the whole weird house thing. Like, I, yeah, I, I don't know. There's a diff- different ways you could have taken that. I yeah. feel like it's a, maybe sort of a blind spot in this movie. Um, I also think like his, that was what I wanted to say earlier was he doesn't ever get like the police formally involved. There's this guy that I think is like a PI or something. I kind of missed when they introduced that character that plays the father in the house to sort Mm -hmm. of blur everyone in. But it's like, you've got so much information. Why don't you go to the cops and make this like a formal investigation? Not that I support going to the cops, but like in the case of like your daughters are missing, like I think you might want to formalize it a little bit just to have a paper trail <laughs> um, so you don't yeah. end up murdering a bunch of people in a house, um, you know, whatever. But so, so, so I think some of those behaviors are just really, really bizarre and pathological, but I feel like it was driving at something that I still don't completely have my hands around. And it's, and it's about all this sort of philosophical, like, who am I? Are we connected to ourselves? Um, what is the purpose of life? Is it to seek pleasure? Is it to seek life or is it to seek death kind of shit? Like it gets really right. heady and existential. So this is where I start getting my, like my, I'm chasing my own tail kind of feeling. And it's what I feel like I, I haven't fully unpacked about this movie. Because I think it asks those questions. Like it, it's one of the questions that the cult asks over and over. Like, are you connected to yourself? Yes. And I don't think it's I think you see different characters that are and I think what you see here like what's fascinating to me is like how uh, Noriko and Yuka see like the cult or see like the organization they're part of for Noriko it completely subsumes her initial personality like she's no longer Noriko like she's Mitsuko Mm -hmm. um she goes by this alias to such a degree that it's no longer an alias like this is simply who she is and who she has always been Mm -hmm. and it's like that for her because like she was on that journey of discovery because she didn't quite know who she was she was still trying to figure herself out like she tried being the journalist like her dad she saw her friend tangerine and like her costuming and like the job she had and was like oh that could be actually mm-hmm. like pretty nice and her sister's like they're getting exploited you don't want any part of that right where 
Yuka, from the outset, is much more confident. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, she's able to, with about 90% accuracy, predict exactly how her father is going to act. Because she's very plugged into who she is. Mm-hmm. And because she's plugged into who she is, she can notice how other people are going to react as well. Yes. She doesn't join the cult because she needs to find out like anything about herself. She just wants to be around her sister. Yeah. You, it's. I, I find her position in all of this very um, painful because despite sort of being, I think, maybe a little smarter than everyone else in her family mm-hmm. and, and more grounded and more like aware of people's subconscious motivations, she still feels this intense desire to be with her family and to be mm-hmm. especially her sister. She like loves her so much that she'll follow her into this bizarro cult, you know, um, and... I think that the way it plays out for her is is also really sad because she basically sees her whole family get decimated and then, and except for her sister who's still physically alive, but she realizes at the end of the film, like there's nothing more to be gained here. So I have to drop all this bullshit. I'm no longer who I was and I'm not Yoko, this fake identity. I have to go and find myself. And um, in, in looking up stuff about this movie, I saw that, uh, Sona wanted this to be part of a trilogy and I mm-hmm. can imagine that maybe we would have followed her and learned more about wh- whatever she was going to find and that she would somehow get sucked back into this suicide yeah. circle um, but I you know I, I think that he was maybe setting that up but I also think it ends on a in the perfect place in a, in a lot of ways because it's like mm-hmm. so, you, you know t- turning back to the cult thing you had had a note that we didn't, I don't think we got into, and maybe we'll get more into it at some point, but the idea of like sunken cost, um, this idea that a lot of reasons people stick around in cults is even after they realize that it's bullshit is because they're like, no, I've put so much time and money and effort into this. Like, I can't just leave it now. I'm going to see this thing through, even if it kills me. Yeah. Yeah. Yuka makes a choice to, yeah. Despite all the sunken costs, just to cut ties and walk away. Not to bring everything back to the Simpsons, but <laughs> there's like life. One of my fa- top five favorite moments is like when like some sort of missile or bomb is heading towards Springfield, and like the comic book guy just looks up at it and just goes, "Oh, I've wasted my life." Yes, yeah, so and it's oh, just I've before wasted- the bomb <laughs> yeah. hits, and it's like to me one of the funniest moments I love because that. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrifying like to the idea this idea that like everything that i've believed in everything that i've worked for all of these things are actually bullshit yes and (laughs) this idea that now you have to tear that down and start all over again Mm -hmm. where it would be it's just easier to accept i'm just going to dig this pit deeper and just see where it comes out and maybe maybe i'll get lucky but i can't face starting all over from scratch again exactly even though you know it's proven again and again that that's really the only choice you have is to get out no matter what Mm -hmm. you know because there's you know there's nothing waiting for you that's different at the bottom of the hole but yes that is also one of the funniest lines in simpsons history (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) it's i would have loved to have seen more of what how Noriko was broken down and made compliant Mm -hmm. because 
what you see, like she's introduced to this family and you get that love bombing right away where the first two stops with Kamiko and her quote unquote family are to the grandmother's house. And she's immediately thrust in this, these two scenes where grandma is so happy to see them. There's, and there is a life in those scenes. And there is this just energy that had been always been missing from Noriko's own family life. You can see where it's like, I want to be a part of this. Where when their next stop is the grandfather's house, and Kamiko was like, You are his granddaughter, and he has missed you, and now he's dying. She finds herself unable to say no or step back and go, Well, that's really weird. Mm -hmm. She jumps in because I'm sure at that moment it's really hard to say, If I say no, all that acceptance I've just felt is going to go away. And I wish there was more of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think we could have had less of the procedural detective stuff and maybe more of that. And I think I would have found that more interesting personally, because no. um, you kind of get the sense that she's it's it's what is so disorienting about this movie initially is like you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is happening and why is she so primed for it? It's almost like she's been craving this like she's you know, when she's sitting across from her real father at the dinner table toward the beginning of the movie, she's just staring at him with such this like blank like hey i don't know what to read into it is it hatred is it repulsion but it's like it's clear that her family unit is unable to give her the emotional to hit meet meet her emotional needs she needs something that feels more genuine and the irony is that Mm -hmm. she goes into people who are basically like larping you know larping a loving family in order to to feel it and she the scene, another scene that I found really interesting is when they get all punked out and they go to that man's house who clearly is, like had his wife and children had died. Um, mm-hmm. She is so into her role that she doesn't want it to end. She is loving the sort of desperate love that she's getting out of this man who is just so happy to have them have returned home, even if it's in this dilapidated filthy apartment where and this man is very weird and depressed and like you know Mm -hmm. it's so bizarre to me but like um uh kamiko is like snap the fuck out of it we gotta go rules are rules to me that is almost like she she wants to stay in the love and kamiko drags her out of it and she's seeking that feeling over and over again to me that could be read as like a love bombing moment but um Mm -hmm. in a very weird weird way (laughs) And you mentioned LARPing and this idea of like playing a role and getting that feeling of connection. Like sometimes it feels like it's easier to build like a virtual world or this like an online presence Mm -hmm. or like a second life presence where if things don't go your way, you can kind of like hit the erase button, delete the file and start over again. It's easier to build those connections because there's so much lower stake than yes. trying to build like an actual real world, real life connection where it's much more messier. It's much more entrenched in there's really no way to ever take it back. Like once it's out into the ether, you have to deal with the consequences of it. Yeah, it's interesting because our last topic was like toxic fandom. And I, I definitely at various points in my life got really into obsessing over some fictional relationships or fictional dynamics because mm-hmm. it was so much safer feeling to yeah. stay in that kind of space versus trying to go out and make connections of real emotional depth with other people because it's it's sort of like this safe space in which you can try on different 
roles that you might play, a loving daughter, um, a loving wife or something without actually having to, yeah, like you said, raise those stakes. Um, and I and I think like fiction and online stuff is and gaming and all these things are ways that we do that. But then what you don't realize is that you get emotionally invested in it regardless and it still has mm-hmm. an impact on you. You can't play with emotions on some level. You're still feeling them. Yeah. What do you make of Kamiko's backstory and this idea that in this, it's, I kind of glossed over, I don't even think I put it in the synopsis. Um, Kamiko has this locker full of trinkets that she says make, that have all these personal connections, but what she's really done is she's like taken them from other people mm-hmm. and she's kind of like stolen their story in some ways. Like, what do we make of Kamiko's? backstory and motivations because i go back and forth a lot with her yeah i don't really know um i think it's really interesting and i I kind of love that symbol of stuffing this locker full of other people's memories um to create thing because like she is the ultimate character who has no sense of identity you know she has she doesn't know who her her parents are so she says my mother was a locker um and she fills that locker with fake stories and her whole life is running a family rental service that role plays things for people. Um, she, there's, there's just an emptiness at her core that I think is painful for her. I think, you know, and, and she's sort of in her monologues is, you know, I didn't write them down, but it, the effect, the, the takeaway that I got from them was like, I am better than other people because I don't have emotional connections because I can, I see the truth behind everyone's bullshit. And that is that, you know, the world is cold and cruel and that, um, the, what we should be doing, it's, it's makes you more enlightened to move past human connection and to like seek pain on some level. I think she said something to that effect toward the end when she was walking back from the grocery market to the house uh, wearing the white turtleneck situation. Um, and it's kind of like, I feel like that's a theme and it's a thing. And it's a thing that I think people go through who have really traumatic early life experiences and who don't feel like they have a support system. It can, can be easier to like turn away from it or become really cynical about it as a defense mechanism. And again, that's like what I mean by when we say this movie has a lot going on. I feel like that's a whole fucking thing that could be its own movie um it's like exploring yeah. what is going on with her and why but we only get these little glimpses of it so i don't really know what my takeaway is from it yeah you see that that scene where she's able very quickly to recruit the woman and her husband in as mom and dad yes. where i think the woman genuinely believes like she is kamiko's mother and mm-hmm. who abandoned her baby in this locker and now regrets and has found her and Kamiko like isn't having it like she doesn't it's not even that she doesn't believe the woman it's that she doesn't care whether or not like that to her is not important anymore because that is the past and the past isn't important it's only the only thing that's important is the present moment Mm -hmm. and the moment that comes after it Mm -hmm. um and you see her psychologically like torment this woman in just a couple minutes in that she starts by playing the role of the daughter reunited with her mother and then is like nope this is boring to me we're going to reverse the roles 
and you you don't see you never see the other woman's face but you hear the confusion and the hurt in her voice like she doesn't know what is going on and Kamiko makes her an offer like if you feel like your mother you can always be my mother by playing the role of it. Mm-hmm. If that's what you really want, you want to have be reunited with your daughter, that's fine. You can do that, but it will never be real. It will always be in the service of this role. And you see that later on with Yuka and Noriko, where when she tells them, like, we're going on this job, she's like, you're going to be sisters on this job, but you're not sisters. It's not Noriko and Yuka. It's Yoko and Mitsuko. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she even scolds them when she feels they're being too sisterly to one another because they're not doing the job of playing sisters. They're being actual sisters. It's really fucked up. It's so fucked up. And it's like, it's it's very controlling. Like she loses control when real emotions enter the picture. As long as it's all part of this elaborate fantasy that she's constructed, she has control and can say, now you can stop being my mother. Now you must stop being sisters. And I don't know whether to read that as she's like a psychopath with no emotions or she was so deeply hurt by her initial abandonment that this is the only safe way she can explore emotions. Because there are moments throughout the movie where it's like she does seem to be expressing empathy or feeling something, but you can't tell if she's playing Mm -hmm. it or if she's really experiencing it. And I think maybe she doesn't even know, you know? Yeah, and you talked about um, being a teenager and like getting into punk, which we something that both of us did and like wearing the costume of being a punk rocker. And yes. part of that costume is not only the clothes, but it's also the sneering attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's eventually why I veered more towards like the emo side of punk than the hardcore side of punk. Yeah. Because like, I do not do a good job of hiding or masking emotions. Like, I wear them <laughs> on my sleeve. Yeah. Um, she is very much like wearing part of her costume is like role playing those emotions and like very much in service of like being on the clock. And there's very much can be taken on and off as part of the costume. What about this idea? Like, do you think she's ultimately providing a good and valuable service for some of these persons? Oh, boy, I don't know. That's an, I mean, I could not possibly give you a definitive answer to that. Like I think, if you took away all the other things that they were doing and you were just visiting little old ladies and being like, hi, it's me, your granddaughter. Like I could say like, sure, I don't see anything really wrong with that. As long as you're not like the, the, where it starts to get manipulative is like, how much are they paying you to do this? Like, what else are you taking from them in order for the, to provide this service? Like, you know, the, <laughs> like there are services that are like volunteer driven things, like where you go and visit, elderly people and you bring them meals and you offer emotional support for for nothing you know for nothing in exchange because it's the right thing to do and it's it's you know you want someone to feel connected so I get the sense like that's not the deal here she is using this as a for-profit business and also as a recruitment tool to do weird suicide stuff like I, so of course it's not good <laughs> but but I think the core idea of playing you know, a, a loving role for people who feel really lonely is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I 
I was leaning towards like there is some good in it, except for the like depending on what your role is. Meaning, if your role is simply your mom and dad and sister in this role play, then there's some good and some value there. If your role is I'm going to get stabbed by a (laughs) psychopathic misogynist, like that's very bad. Like jumping to your death in front of a moving subway car, like also very bad. Yes, not only for you, but you're traumatizing everybody else that like is that's why like you know i'm not like hey no kink shaming like i'm a non like i'm open to like anyone sort of kink but when you make it public or make persons involved in it that aren't necessarily consenting agreeing to be in consenting that's where it's different yes i think what as you were talking what hit me is there's no aftercare Mm. with this sort of service and i think that's a really important thing is like when the time is up Kamiko completely switched like we have to go we're out the door um, I know for me like if I do a session with a client uh, a therapy session with a client um, where for a second they're like a session are you daddy dom like yeah, no, 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 no I am not, not that kind of I session am, the pr- the, no a not therapeutic that there's anything session wrong with that yeah. there is nothing <laughs> nothing wrong with that but uh, that patron level folks no, will be no, anyway no 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 no, um, no, 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 no. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> lost track of thought uh, yes, if i do a here. really heavy session with a client like i will go a few minutes long and be like let's check in like we're gonna do an extra breathing exercise yes. or decompression exercise we're gonna check in and say like how are you feeling walking out the door today you know we'll take that time because like otherwise I'm doing them a disservice. I don't want to send them out the door worse than when they came in. And I think that's very likely what happens with a lot of these clients when the timer goes off and she's like, fuck you, hate me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She's like, okay, daddy, I love you so much. Beep, 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 beep. Get the fuck out of my face. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, very weird. And that kind of indicates to me that she's, she's doing this for other motivations mm-hmm. and and pure either pure profit or weird yeah. manipulation i will say i have this new therapist and and she do, and this is something that was new to me is like um if we're moving toward the end of the session she'll stop me and say like okay i don't want you to get too escalated at this point in the session let's because we only have like five minutes left let's do a, a breathing or a grounding yeah. exercise that kind of thing and she's always like to you know take some breaths that kind of, and i really appreciate mm-hmm. that because it 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 does i've noticed it makes a difference like i feel yep. better after the sessions and not like completely wrung out you know and i'm like yeah. i've never experienced that in therapy before except for emdr and ke- like the ketamine therapy stuff which were very sort of functional and isolated experiences that i had versus but doing that in just like a more ongoing therapeutic practice i think it is great i love it you know i'm like cool (laughs) i've done that i need to get more consistent with doing it i think that's a that is what i would call like a best practice like to make sure that like before because i mean you know we've opened in therapy like every now and then like you're on your way out the door you put your hand on the doorknob and you're like, oh, by the way, I witnessed like four murders last week and got like, you know, like what you did, you know, you get some like crazy oh. story, you know, right when you walk out, you're like, maybe you should have led with that. Um, yes, yes. You're like, ah, there's this thing I've been meaning to tell you. Um, yeah. yeah. I went to an island in Scotland and they burned a guy in a wicker man. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I recently had a session where a person relayed a story that was so horrific and over the top that I burst out laughing because I didn't oh, know no. what else to do. And <laughs> I apologize. Well, they were laughing as well yes. because like it's so, you, um, when you hear it, it was so like it happened years ago. And I like I am so sorry. But like if you showed me this in a movie, I wouldn't believe that it could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that. Yeah. So bad. Bad mic. Um, I mean, sometimes I've I've done that to therapists before too, because my whole thing is like when I tell stories that are really upsetting, I always sort of make it into like a five a tight five mm-hmm. stand up routine because it's just how I get through it, you know. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, sometimes I'll be like, you know, no, no, it's okay if you laugh. Like I meant that to be funny, you know. It doesn't take away from the conversation, the you know, like or what we're getting out of it. But mm-hmm. sometimes I, I mean, that's just how I also deal with things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, Laura, you've, you watched Suicide Club after yes. watching this. And I've only been able to watch the first 15 minutes. Like I think we both felt like maybe watching Suicide Club will add some context that we're missing here. Uh, what were your impressions after watching Suicide Club? Oh, uh, very different movie. They're not, they sort of, again, like they rotate around the same event of the suicide of the 54 schoolgirls at the train station but um the tone the tone of the movies is so different uh and everything in suicide club is like very visceral and let's focus on what's happening you know externally and not at all really what's happening internally um but it's also so transgressive and so over the top like you know they say if you are at all prone to suicidal ideation or suicidal thinking, I would not recommend watching that movie because they're, it's like they have a checklist of like, what are all the different ways someone can kill themselves? And let's show oh boy. you it in as much gratuitous detail as possible. I mean, it's really over the top. And then it takes some twists and turns where you're like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I really mm-hmm. loved it in a lot of ways because I love over the top fucked up shit like you know it, it because and because of the way it's treated it's hard to take it too seriously but i could see it really being triggering for people um yeah it, it's it's <laughs> it takes some turns i'm still like i i just was i wish i had been watching it with someone because i just want i was like doing the thing where you want to like look over at someone else on the couch and be like what the fuck <laughs> what the shit like you have to watch it like i highly i mean if you feel like you can handle the subject matter and maybe we should put a a, a trigger or content warning at the top of this episode too now that i'm talking Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about it about suicide specifically um but it's 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 wild it does take a it takes a turn toward the end that i find really really interesting um that is sort of dropped in this movie in the in the nature of the suicide circle or cult and can i give a a little spoiler or do you not want to hear it okay so no go ahead i mean it's a 20 year old movie at this point so it's my fault for not having seen it well and the thing that i think is really interesting that kind of doesn't get followed through in this movie is that it turns out like the a lot of this is being driven by like children like little tiny tiny children Mm -hmm. like little fucking like school age younger than not even yet bordering on teenage children um and and when that's revealed, it's very like, what the fuck? But they're also like, they're they're the ones saying like, are you connected to yourself? Are you what, what's going like? And the, and like, and it's got this very like, and it and it's bookended by this little pop group thing that is so funny and so bizarre. But it, I think it's supposed to be this sort of like satirical critique of like toxic positivity in media culture, and then also how 
how like things that seem positive on their surface are actually really insidious and how they affect children and teenagers and people that are really vulnerable. And I mean, again, it's, there's a lot going on in there that I'm not totally sure is fully baked, but it's so interesting. And like, it's like, you, again, this is, and it was reminding me a little bit of perfect blue with like the pop group stuff, you know, and, um, you just have to see it. It feels very Tim and Eric-y almost. <laughs> um, it, it's, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I am only far enough along where I've seen the inciting incident. Yes. And then it cuts to like a, a J-pop group singing. And I'm like, that is a weird juxtaposition. Yes. Oh, the other thing, like watching Noriko's, the soundtrack, like I think I even texted you and Jen. I'm like, this soundtrack is like super Wes Anderson. Yes, it is. Anderson-y. It's got that like. It's like mm-hmm. it's- kind of like whimsical light airy tone to the music mm-hmm. that and it's as a it's a motif that repeats over and over and i just remember texting i'm like i don't think this is going to be a very wes anderson type <laughs> yes. movie yes um uh, it plays with your emotions in that way and, and that's, we... that's what it has in common with suicide club i no. would say very okay. much yeah i see your a note here and i guess maybe we can wrap with us unless we have other things here you have a note here about like the uh, Om, Sh- Om Shinrikyo, you know, gonna... yeah. <laughs> what was what was this? I've never heard of this. Yeah, this is just, I guess, to close uh, this conversation, this is something that happened not long before Suicide Club was made. Uh, so I, I'm very curious. And just to kind of, if, you, if you're if you interested in cults, I highly recommend this as a subject matter just because it's a really fascinating, fucked up story. Um, Om Shinrikyo, I wonder if he was inspired by it, they were a Japanese death cult that recruited members using like anime and sci-fi comics, like specifically targeting a lot of really young people. Um, there was a attack in the subway in Tokyo in 1995 using sarin gas that killed some people, not as many as they intended. They also did one other uh, sarin gas attack, but they, you know, the timeline is a little fuzzy for me. Um, I can kind of see getting obsessed with, why anyone would participate in this and it leading to the stories told in Suicide Club and Noriko's Dinner Table because that cult was so especially bizarre if you get into the details of it where I could just see somebody being like, what the fuck is this shit? Like there was a video game that they made and like anime and like a whole bunch of like, they had a full like studio of like animators that made little things and stuff like this um that's not, not like a full-blown studio but like a handful of people they recruited a lot of like nerds and would make this like sort of entertainment kind of material um i mostly bring it up though because it's really fascinating and a rabbit hole i recommend going down um last podcast did a really great series on it i'm sure there's other podcasts and stuff written on it that um uh, I, I know there's some documentary, but I don't remember what it's called. But yeah, just check it out. It's A-U-M-S-H-I-N-R-I-K-Y-O, Om Shinrikyo. Uh, look it up. That's bizarre. Uh, anime studio around an apocalyptic death cult. Yeah, it's fucking weird as fuck, man. And like, and the leader of it, uh, he like like did things like he levitated. <laughs> like, it's oh, all God. this crazy shit. Like, and and the and the shit that they did to those cult members. Talk about like breaking people down. It's grotesque. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's a really interesting story. Uh, if you're yeah. a morbid piece of shit like me. 
Yeah. Well, that see like levitating cult leader seems like a pretty high note. <laughs> yes. Womp womp to go out on. <laughs> do we have anything else or should we move on to our next? Let's move on. <laughs> Let's do it. So just very briefly, we're going to mention other mental health topics that we see depicted in Noriko. It might not be the main focus, um, but they're just things that we kind of like picked up on as we're watching. And then I had like attachment theory being one of them with like Noriko being unable to really form a bond with mom and dad. Um we saw like grief and bereavement depicted throughout with Tetsuso, mm-hmm. but also with a lot of the clients of the cult overall. Obviously, suicide would be like if we miss that one, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be yeah, whoopsie. Comes up a few times. That was in there. Was there anything you picked out? Uh, just specifically identity, sense of identity and how that's formed. I mean, it's kind of su- subtextual to attachment theory, perhaps, but I think that's like a thing that we haven't dived into a lot on this podcast yet and mm-hmm. i just think it's really interesting yeah all right and what other movies do we see this sort of thing depicted in i am always very bad at this but i had like martha marcy may marlene the movie that i think introduced elizabeth olsen oh. to the world at large it's like a movie about a young woman uh indoctrinated in a, a cult which is like a little indie film that I don't remember all the details, except that I really enjoyed it. And also maybe like Ty West, The Sacrifice, Mm. which is uh, the sacrament, I'm sorry, which is basically like a fictional retelling of Jonestown. Yeah, Jonestown for the Vice News era. Anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing to do with the cult side of it, but to do with the identity side of it. I thought of the movie Ghost World a few times. Not a a horror movie, but I think Mm -hmm. appeals to a lot of people who are... Uh, weirdos and what have you. It hasn't aged perfectly yeah. in a lot of ways, but um, I, I, I was really reminded of like the Enid character trying on different identities and trying to find any sense of self and not having any connection with her father, stuff mm-hmm. like that, like feeling really lost and, and yeah. trying to seek um, relationships of meaning and fucking them up. <laughs> so, uh, And now it's time for an uplifting moment. La. I felt so powerful saying that. <clears throat> this is where we it's sh- kind of nice being in the gen scene i know i'm like it? i'm like... jen speaking of identity mm-hmm. yeah uh <laughs> sorry jen uh this is where we share any grounding or self-care that's been particularly helpful for us recently so that can really take the form of anything you want it doesn't have to be some uh, uh you know new agey bullshit mike would you like to kick us off for what is uplifting you yeah lately yeah, man, like everything is coming up Millhouse right now. It's kind of <laughs> good. Um, so the big news I have is I recently earned my full uh, LMHC license. I'm Woo! now a fully licensed therapist. So took the test, got all the hours in, actually managed to fill all the paperwork out in the first try, <laughs> wow. which if anyone who knows me is like, that's bullshit. Um, I did have to redo two of the... Um, two of the sign-offs from supervisors because my rabbit ate them. Um, <laughs> so really? I didn't think I could turn them in. Uh, I, she literally chewed the paperwork That's on so them. Um, so I'm a fully licensed therapist, which is awesome. Yay. It opens up a lot of things for me in terms of like what I can do professionally. Uh, and also like the school year has kicked off. I'm in my fourth year as a school counselor in a kind of like very urban, very 
impoverished district. Um, but unlike last year, like where I was really dreading the start of the year and almost didn't want to go back, like this year I feel like just like really recharged and like really looking forward to the year. And after the first week, I just feel like it already feels better. It feels calmer. Like I feel really excited to be around all the kids and I'm enjoying being around them and working with them and like working with these families. So it's just kind of like, it's a nice change from where I was a year ago. That's great. So, it's good to hear. Yeah. Cause I remember, I mean, I remember very distinctly how unhappy you sounded and what you were describing sounded really stressful. So I'm very happy to yeah. hear that. And it will get stressful again, but I think I'll be better equipped to not let it overwhelm me Yeah. or maybe put it in a better, healthier perspective. Yeah. What about yourself, Lara? Yeah, um, things have not been coming up Millhouse for me per se, but that's okay. You know, everything is a cycle. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, like I said, I, I think the, the big thing for me is is finding a new therapist and really trying to do some of the homework, like, you know, remembering what you have said in the past about, like, therapy is only an hour or 45 minutes of your week or whatever, and I'm trying to start with some really, really small things that I can stick to in terms of, mm -hmm. of little exercises and grounding things to, to take care of myself. Um, because it's been very hard. I've had a really hard time with things lately. Um, and I don't want to go into the winter feeling that miserable because winters are really hard for me and very isolating yeah. since the pandemic. Um, so I'm really trying to set myself up for, if not success, not failure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So TBD, how that's going to go, but I'm, I'm working yeah. on it. Okay. And I think sometimes like finding that new therapist, like you said, like them doing that one thing mm -hmm. that you're like, oh, that's great. Like how much of an impact that one little thing can make and how it can blossom from there. Absolutely. So. I mean, it really, it's, and that's kind of how I'm approaching it. Start small, yeah. focus on the one little thing, okay. take it one day at a time. <laughs> yeah. So, what are we watching next? Where are we going from here? Well, we are going to be continuing our series on fundamentalism, cults, and religious fanaticism with a special third, because it's the third, uh, three Thursdays this month, third movie on the topic with St. Maud, which is another patron pick. Um, before that, I'll be really honest, like we'll let you know when we know what we're going to be covering. Um, we did have a movie lined up with a guest for a comfort horror episode. It's just been a little bit difficult trying to make the schedule work and knowing that like Jen, Lara and myself, like we're all ridiculously busy and we love doing the show. We love delivering it every week, but I think sometimes we need to love ourselves a little more. <laughs> we either will record an episode or, um, I'm hoping like one of Jen's other podcasts, like what we did with the pod of the pendulum where we put my Texas chainsaw massacre in the feed. I'm suggesting like, will we be able to maybe do that uh, with one of Jen's other shows where if there's something you haven't listened to, you get a taste of it right now. So we'll, when we know what we're doing, we'll let you know, but we will definitely be back in a couple weeks with uh, St. Maud a hundred percent for sure. Thanks for listening to that episode. We want to know what you think. I'm going to do some Jen-style puns here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to her glory, but have you ever run away to Tokyo to find yourself? Have you ever been catfished into joining a cult? What's your favorite? BBSwebsite.com. Uh, you can share all of these things and more by following us on socials at Psycho A Pod and looking out for the prompts there. 
You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you'd like to share privately. And our homework question for today is, Mike. What personal item would you include in a subway train locker that holds great value or nostalgic meaning to you? Yeah, whether that's a photograph, uh, a lock of your victim's hair, whatever it might be. Yes, the murder weapon, mm-hmm. you know, don't something. Don't be too incriminating because we yes, will have to don't. report you. I, it's just, I'm sorry. Yeah. I have a Fozzie Bear stuffed animal that an ex-girlfriend gave me back in the day. Like this is 20 something years ago now. So pre-internet, pre-being able to get anything you want on Amazon, we would always go to like garage sales or, you know, like um, thrift stores trying to find a Fozzie Bear for me because I love Fozzie mm-hmm. and like one day she surprised me with it and like I still like it sits on my bookshelf like still to this day it means a lot to me so yeah I, all uh, right. I have a shoe box that I call my trauma box that's full of mm-hmm. all the stuff that like is really sad and upsetting but that I don't want to part ways with for one reason right. or another and like, only when I'm ready do I take it out and we'll look through it so I think I just stick yeah. that whole fucking thing in there yeah Excellent. All right. So let's talk Patreon right yes, now. Let's yes. talk about what's... If you want more of us, uh, go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysispodcast. Now, a little caveat to that. Like, Jen, Laura, and myself, we were kind of talking last night, and I raised the idea of, like, look, we're all a little burned out right now. Like, we've been doing this since 2020, and we've done it pretty nonstop, like, delivering an episode every week really consistently, and I know, like, Lara is, like, insanely busy with work, and Jen has, like, the Losers Club and White Ladies in Crisis, her writing assignments, on top of, like, her day job and family, and, you know, I do the pod and the pendulum, uh, and also, like, work two gigs and try to be an okay dad and husband, and, <laughs> you know, try to do my best with that, so... What we I suggested, and I think we all agreed to, is like we're gonna put a pause on the Patreon right now. Like I'm not gonna collect any more donations. Or like if you want to sign up for it, great, but you won't be charged until we restart it again, probably January first, right now, just to give us some time to kind of recoup and recharge the batteries. If now that doesn't mean if you've contributed to the $50 level that we're going to skip you. Our goal is to get through all of the $50 um, suggestions, basically, where you were able to suggest the topic in the movie. We still have like about four or five more of those to go through, and we're so grateful for that. I love doing them, but we, I feel bad when someone's like, donated in april and it's going to be november before we get to it it's been way more popular than we anticipated Mm -hmm. so we're going to get through everything that we have there and then see what we do going forward if you want to become a patron by all means go patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast you won't be charged and that includes our current patrons you won't be charged again until like probably January at the earliest, if it's not even longer, just so we can like focus on delivering the weekly show and have it be fun for everybody. Um, I will probably throw things up there on my own for listeners and patrons, just as a thank you for sticking with us. Um, but they'll be like kind of sporadic. There'll be like treatment plans and like recommendations and fun stuff when we get to the spooky season. But you know, we don't want to like have you sign up for it and then not be able to get any content. Like that's not fair yeah. to anyone. 
Well, and we so, really yeah. appreciate your patience with us. And yeah, yeah hope, uh, you know, and there is a backlog of stuff if you haven't listened. We've got some episodes and commentaries and things and horniness up there that yeah. you can still go back and check out. Um, but for the time being, we think yeah. this is, is for the yeah. best. So appreciate yeah. all of you so much. Depending on your level, there's anywhere from about 15 to 40 hours of horniness and <laughs> stuff that is up there. It's not just right horniness, now. but there is some horniness. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So on that note, what do we have to plug right now? Where can we find us and what are we doing? Lara, how about yourself? Oh, boy. Uh, so, yeah, like I, I don't really have much to plug at this time. I have locked my Twitter. I mean, you can still follow me if you want on there. But if for various reasons, I, um, I've made it a private account for the time being. Um, I sometimes post on TikTok at underallis, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-E-S, because underalls was taken by me. And I can't figure out how to lock back into that one. We don't need to talk about it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so I'm so busy with with work and and trying to take care of myself and shit that I haven't been posting a lot. But and I'm also working on some creative stuff slowly that maybe I'll be able to share with you uh, in the future. So bear with me as I have nothing special to offer you, Mike. <laughs> All right. So if you want, I. I do not have anything special either. There's nothing special. No, you can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. Uh, and if you aren't, go ahead and listen to my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, where we cover horror movie franchises. We are coming to the near end. We have three movies left in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Insert Jen's chainsaw oh, noise. Let me see if I can try and do it. <laughs> It's a for effort. I can't. She's a better vocalist. B minus her execution. Fuck she's off. really good. She, at she that. is good. She's good. I can't. I can't. I can't match. I can't match her skill set. <laughs> Did you tell me to? I gave you a B minus. You said B minus. I said good. fuck off. Okay. It's I know. Wow. I'm mad. Our show was a hate crime. Um, I gave an A for effort. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks a lot. Thanks a all lot. All right. <laughs> Kidding. Um. I think, oh, I, you know, I won't say it because I will get myself in trouble at work. But <laughs> okay. I use the phrase, well, that's like being the best tree in the play recently uh-huh. about something that happened. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the part of the pendulum, we cover horror movie franchises. Like, honestly, like not to toot my own horn, but like, I think we we're like really fucking killing it with the Texas Chainsaw series. Like, I think we've done some of our best work. Uh, I am very fortunate to have like, uh, Rachel Reeves and Devon Taylor and Nicole Goebel and uh, Stephen Foxworthy and Brian uh, Brian Kuyper and Jessica Scott is like recurring panelists on the show like whenever they can jump on because they add so much to the show in terms of insight and humor and like we have these phenomenal discussions and it's like I thought we'd end at 200 episodes and I'm like eh we can get it to 300 we're halfway there so Please download the pod and the pendulum if you haven't listened to it already, wherever you get your podcasts. And on that note, Lara, you want to take it home? I sure can. That That's our episode on Narika's Dinner Table. Thank you again to Holly for suggesting this film. As Thank you, Holly. Yes, really appreciate it. It's one I hadn't seen and probably wouldn't have encountered otherwise. So listeners... Thank you for spending time with us. As Jen always says and sounds much more sincere than I'm about to, please make sure you're taking care of yourselves and each other. And with that, let's sign off. 
We came here to chew bubblegum. We came here to... Oh. <laughs> I thought we don't read that all together. Here, here. You take it. My bad. No, no. It's, it's, Jen, we need you. Uh, Jen, please come back. <laughs> we're going to eat each other's ourselves alive here. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And, and we're, we're all out of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs>